What's up, guys, and welcome back to another brand new episode of the Listen to Me Speak podcast. We are on season two, episode 35. And like always, I want to thank you guys so much for the support that you show each episode. I really do appreciate it. Those of you that share it on your social media, you send it to a friend. I really, really appreciate the support. And without wasting any more time, let's get right into the new episode. So I want to start off first by talking about Bridgerton. So um, before I get into anything, Netflix had kind of started doing what, I guess what um, television networks do, the upfronts where they introduce new shows for the fall season or for the um, prime television season. And Netflix started doing their own version of that. So they started releasing teasers and trailers for upcoming seasons of their shows. They've also started announcing renewals for some of the shows on Netflix. And among some of the teasers was a new teaser for Bridgerton for season two. This is the very first teaser that we've gotten for a season two. So those of you who don't know, season two will be focusing on Anthony and his quest to find a wife. And in this teaser, Anthony meets Kate Sharma for the first time. And this is the character who I assume ends up becoming his wife, according to the books, because Bridgerton is based off of a book series. So each season is going to be based off of a different book, which is why the plot for this season is completely different than the one from season one. They did say that um, some of the main characters from the previous season may appear in the season but mostly the focus is going to be on Anthony and like I said his quest to find a wife which will be interesting because in season one he was very against the idea of getting married and I guess taking on I don't know if since he's the firstborn I think he would take over being like the head of the family I don't think he would be a king I don't think so but he would move up and I guess he didn't want the responsibility of that. He didn't want the pressures of being like a, a real royal because in season one, he fell in love with a woman and she, I believe was, I forgot what she did. I want to say maybe she was a stripper or a prostitute. Either way, he fell in love with her. They were hooking up and she wanted to be with him, but obviously he couldn't be with her in public. So they had to keep sneaking around. She eventually got tired of this and moved on with someone else. So that was kind of the end of that relationship. So now I guess he's given in to the fact that, you know, I have to get married. I don't have a choice at this point, whatever. And I'm assuming that Anthony and Kate end up being the right match for each other considering they get married. Now, I know that doesn't mean anything always, but from the comments under the trailer, a lot of people were excited about them meeting. So I do think that they end up having like a, a really good relationship and a good marriage. I was on the fence about watching a season two because I didn't find Anthony to be an interesting enough character to base the whole to base a whole season off of. But you know, I did enjoy the first season. I do kind of want to see where the story continues, so I may give it a shot. I may give a season two of Bridgerton a shot. I'm gonna wait for a full trailer to be released before I make my final decision. But I might, I might tune in for a season two. I can imagine that because they released the teaser already that season two is probably going to drop sometime early next year, possibly, because I know they were filming the show. I think they started filming the show back when the movie and TV sets, I guess, came to an agreement about how they were going to film under COVID now that people are getting the vaccine, you know, they're mandating their actors that, hey, you have to get vaccinated if you want to continue to film. So once they were able to kind of get that under control, I believe Bridgerton started filming for the second season. So I can imagine because of COVID delays, I'm sure, because unfortunately COVID outbreaks are always going to be a thing. Um, factoring in those delays, I'm pretty sure they won't have enough. They probably won't be done filming or, or ready to really put out the show until next year. So I'll say early 2022, I think uh, the second season of Bridgerton is going to be up on Netflix. But like I said, I'm going to wait to see the trailer for the second season. And if I like what I see, I'll tune in. Moving on from Bridgerton, I did want to give some of my thoughts on episode one of the second season of Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. So of course, I have to start off by talking about Jen playing the victim like usual. So if you watch the first season, you kind of know that whenever someone calls, and, and this is rare when this happens, 
But whenever someone does call Jen out on her bullshit, of course she plays the victim. And that was not much different in this episode. Heather seemingly, uh, and this was very fleeting, grew a backbone and actually called Jen out on a lot of her behavior and how she was treating her and how she wasn't, you know, being the greatest friend. Heather has the evidence because I believe this was originally revealed during the reunion of the show. But Heather had the receipts of Jen talking trash about her to other people, literally screenshots of her conversations and where she's insulting Heather, calling her Shrek and Honey Boo Boo and a racist and, and whatever else she called Heather. She's literally presenting that to Jen saying, these screenshots of the messages are from your Instagram. It's from a verified account. It's definitely you. And Jen is still trying to deny it and spin it around on Heather saying, you know, well, yeah, I hurt your feelings, but you hurt mine too and blah, 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 which is by the way, bullshit. Because I think out of all of the cast, Heather seems to be the only genuine person in Jen's life who just wants to be her friend, no strings attached, no other bullshit motives. She just wants a friend. And for Jen to accuse Heather of, you know, being a bad friend or of saying that she hurt Jen's feelings, so Jen retaliated by calling her all of those names. And watching Jen do this was frustrating, especially because Heather is very passive. She lets people walk all over her. The one time she actually grows a backbone and calls Jen out on her bullshit and negativity, Jen wants to flip that around as if Heather's being a bad friend. Let me tell you something. If you have people in your life that can't handle constructive criticism, that can't handle hearing the truth without making you seem like the bad guy, you probably need to cut them loose. Anybody who can't hear any kind of criticism about themselves screams narcissism to me. It just does. Because nobody's perfect. Everybody has flaws. And if you can't be called out on that without getting defensive or without trying to be manipulative and spin the narrative, it's very telling about how you are as a person. And I think that Jen is all of those things I mentioned. Very narcissistic, a terrible friend. And it was also frustrating watching Heather kind of forgive Jen and just say, if you can say that you're sorry, we can be friends again. It was kind of like she knows deep down that Jen is not a good person. She's not a good friend, but I think she's so lonely and she's so need of a friend in need of a friend that she's overlooking that and just saying, Hey, you know, if you say, sorry, I can get something out of that. I can kind of feel better because then I know that you kind of felt bad for saying all those mean and nasty things about me. And I could also sleep well at night being your friend because you apologized, even though it was more of like a forced apology and you can tell that Jen didn't mean it. And she didn't kind of really say sorry. It was kind of like she spun the blame back on Heather and Heather just eventually gave up with trying to badger her into an apology and just accepted it anyway. And I'm glad that Whitney had that conversation with Heather and pretty much said everything that I'm saying right now and, and kind of trying to get Heather to wake up because eventually this friendship between Heather and Jen, since we've already kind of seen the crumbles in this relationship between them by the end of the first season, you cannot remain friends with somebody like Jen. She falls out with everybody. She seems to be a very hard person to get along with. And eventually Heather is going to eventually hit her limit and have to just walk away. Most of the drama from this upcoming season revolves around Jen, you know, her case with the feds, her issues with the other women on the show, her issues in her own marriage. So if Jen does end up getting arrested for these crimes that she has been accused of committing, and I have to say accused or allegedly because, you know, she hasn't been found guilty, you know, the trial hasn't started yet. So I have to say, you know, allegedly, if she does get arrested for these crimes, if she's found guilty, that makes me wonder if the show can survive because Jen really is a lot of the drama on the show. So once you take her away, none of the other girls really give enough drama to keep an audience engaged unless they have someone come in to replace her that can kind of keep the drama going. Because, you know, of course, we all like to say, oh, you know, too much drama. These reality TV shows are rotting our brains and, and all they do is fight. But that's what makes good entertainment. That's what the sole purpose of reality TV is. It's for entertainment. It's for drama. It's for the nonsense. And as much as I don't care for Jen, she does provide a lot of the entertainment on the show. So when you take her 
away from all of that, I wonder if Salt Lake City can keep up um, with the drama of the first season or even this current season. Um, before I wrap up my thoughts on this episode, I also wanted to get into Jen versus Meredith because, you know, right from the trailer of this season, you have Jen asking Meredith, did you call the feds on me? Are you the reason why they were alerted to whatever I was doing, blah, blah, blah. And when I first watched the trailer, I think I even said this on the podcast. I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, you know, drama between Jen and Meredith aside, this is reality television. I really doubt that someone hates you so much from the show that they're going to call the cops or the feds and make this into like a real big legal issue, a real big federal case. It just doesn't seem likely. And in my eyes, nobody from this cast or even show has anything to do with the crimes that Jen had allegedly committed. So I thought the idea of Meredith calling the feds on her was absolutely ridiculous. And then lo and behold, Meredith is on the after show with Andy. I believe it's Andy Cohen. I believe it's Watch What Happens Live. And, you know, a caller calls in and asks Meredith if she had something to do with the feds being called on Jen. And of course, she plays it coy. She doesn't really confirm or deny it. Now, obviously, these reality stars know what they're doing. They know how to drum up hype and drama and attention for their show. So this could be all that is, is just Meredith playing into what people may think to get them to watch the show and to add more drama into it because, you know, what's more dramatic than your cast member having beef with you and deciding, you know, to get the ultimate revenge on you, I'm going to call the feds because I know you're into criminal activity anyway and, you know, I'm going to send you to jail or whatever. So I do keep that in the back of my mind, but I do think it's interesting still that she didn't confirm or deny it. Now, I still personally don't think she actually called the feds, but I can see why Jenna may point her out as a suspect because Meredith does have motive. You know, a lot of, well, I won't say a lot of, but some of the drama this season is stemming from the fact that, you know, Jen is liking and retweeting and reposting horrible things that people online are saying about Meredith's son, Brooks, and his sexuality, which I don't agree with. I think Meredith has every right to be upset with her and, and, I, uh, I completely understand why she wants nothing to do with Jen because once you bring kids into it, it's one thing when you have beef with someone, but when you bring their children into it, it's a whole other thing. Kids should always be kept off limits. So I definitely understand Meredith's anger and her frustration with Jen and Jen is completely in the wrong. I don't care how Jen tries to spin it. You just don't involve kids. I know that Brooks, at least to me, he seems to be very unlikable seems to be very spoiled. He's kind of a brat. Understandable, right? But I still think he should be kept off limits because this is someone's child. So yes, Brooks may have made fun of her vagina because, you know, in his defense as well, Jen did open and spread her legs. It's on camera and I'm sure that was very uncomfortable. I would have been uncomfortable too. So yeah, his comment was maybe a little mean, a little bratty, but I don't think that he deserved to be attacked on social media the way that he was. And when you're talking about someone's sexuality, especially someone who's not, who may not be comfortable in their sexuality, who may not be ready to have that conversation with their parents, for you to then go with repost, retweet, and like these nasty things that people are saying about his sexuality when he may not be comfortable there yet, it's just not okay. So I definitely understand Meredith's anger. And hey, once the kids are involved, you know, my mom always says that you go into mama bear mode. She Meredith would have the motive in this case, but I personally do not believe that she did. But it makes for good reality television. We can keep speculating whether Meredith called or not, but in all honesty, based off of the crimes that she was accused of committing, there are probably some red flags that she raised, caught the cops and the feds' attention, and they probably started um, spying and, and listening in on her conversations and keeping an eye on her to see if they could catch her slipping, and they probably eventually did, and that's probably what alerted them to, you know, finally, I guess, putting in the final pieces to things they already assumed that she was doing, and she was arrested. So I really don't think it has anything to do with Meredith or anybody else on the show. I think it was her own stupid mistakes that got her in this position that she's in. I don't imagine that her marriage 
with her and coach because that's what they call them. I don't imagine that that I, I believe they were already having issues before. I believe that marriage is probably it's probably going to be a wrap after this case, whether she gets jail time or not. I, I kind of think it's a wrap because Jen seems to be a lot to deal with, too much to deal with. But that pretty much wraps up my thoughts about the first episode. It definitely looks like an interesting season, so I will definitely be locked in and let you guys know my thoughts here and there. So moving on from the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City and Jen's drama, I have to get into something really quick. Now, some of you may think this is dumb, but this is currently like a conversation that's been happening on Twitter, and it's about High School Musical and Sharpay. Now, this conversation has been happening for years where people are trying to spin the narrative and paint Sharpay as this girl who was misunderstood instead of a mean girl. Now, for those of you who have not seen High School Musical, and I'll be shocked, unless you're a little bit older, I'll be shocked if you haven't seen High School Musical. But for those of you who haven't seen it, like my parents who listen to my podcast and my grandmother as well, Sharpay is the mean girl of the movie series. She's... You know, obviously this is based off of a musical. They're, these high school kids are in theater and Sharpay is like the main girl in a lot of the theater productions. So when Gabriella and Troy start showing an interest and they become the casting director's favorite, um, I believe it's the teacher's Mrs. Darby, they kind of become her favorites and they start getting casted in a lot of the main roles instead of Sharpay. Obviously, she doesn't like this and tries to make their lives a living hell in each movie. Now, a lot of people have spun the narrative saying, you know, Sharpay, this was her dream. This was her passion. And Troy and Gabriella just came in and took it from her and they're the bad guys. And let's let's break this down a little bit. Sometimes mean girls aren't meant to be redeemed they're not going to evolve. They're not going to change because in real life that happens. There are some terrible people in the world that remain terrible their whole lives. They don't evolve and change. Not every mean girl in movies and television always needs to change and evolve. I know that as human beings, as decent human beings, we always kind of want to see the best in people. We always want to see them evolve. But I think if we want to make things more realistic, sometimes a mean girl remains a mean girl. She doesn't change. And Sharpay does evolve in tiny ways, but at the core of her, she's always going to be that mean girl. That's just who she is. And this is not a serious like conversation where I'm trying to make it like real and serious. It's a funny conversation because I do think it's hilarious that people are trying to make Sharpay, you know, the victim or whatever. But when we really break it down in real life, people don't evolve and don't change. And so for Sharpay, I'm good with Sharpay remaining the mean girl because Every movie, every plot, sometimes you, you you do need a mean character. And I think that Sharpay was one of the best mean girls in history, in my opinion. And she it was essential for her to be the mean girl for the plot. It worked. And so it's just funny that there are so many people who kind of don't see her that way, that kind of see Gabriella as the villain when it really it, it is Sharpay. And there some people are like, oh, you know, Troy was her man and da-da-da and Gabriella stole her. It was always one-sided. Troy was never really into Sharpay. He was always into Gabriella from the moment they met. It was a one-sided crush. And by the time you get to the third movie, Chad, a basketball player on the team who's always had a thing for Sharpay, Sharpay kind of starts to lean and give him that attention by the third movie. They kind of start to, I don't know if they ever really date, but there's kind of like, she starts to reciprocate his crush. And she kind of backs away from Troy a little bit. Now, obviously she's still is a problem in the third High School Musical because like I said, Sharpay doesn't really change. And I never saw her standalone movie because at that point I grew out of my little High School Musical phase. I had no interest in seeing like a solo standalone Sharpay movie. Like I just thought that, I don't think any character was interesting enough for them to give their whole movie to, give a whole movie to them. Like as much as I love Troy, he was my favorite character. I don't think a standalone movie about him or about him and Gabriella really would have worked. They're truly an ensemble cast. So I just had no interest in watching the Sharpay movie. So I don't know where her career ended up taking her at that point. But my main point is that Sharpay is the mean girl and that's okay. She played a great mean girl. She was essential to the plot. And as mean as she was, I enjoyed her as a character. I think that she represented a lot of the stereotypes that theater kids get, you know, spoiled, they're divas, 
they are holier than thou they have egos like Sharpay was the stereotypical I'm not saying that that's true because I do have some theater friends not saying that that's always true but the point of movies sometimes or the media is to exaggerate stereotypes and she was an exaggerated stereotype of what a theater kid is to the T so I loved her character I think she was very dramatic and that's what you need in theater so and it's no different than, you know, movies and musicals like Grease where you have the pink ladies and you have the, you know, so that's all Sharpay was. So, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't think that people, they may not care for her because she was a mean girl, but I don't think there's anybody out there that hates her so much like she was this horrible villain. I think we all enjoyed Sharpay to a degree because again, like I said, she provided a lot of the good drama that makes for good entertainment. It's no different than what I said about reality television. So, but I do think it's an interesting conversation to be had that there are people that genuinely believe that, but I had to throw my two cents in because I think it was an interesting conversation and I definitely don't agree that Sharpay was the victim and that's okay. I do wonder what Ashley Tisdale and, and um, Vanessa Hudgens think about this conversation. They played Sharpay and Gabriella respectively and it's funny because they're best friends in real life, though they hated each other. Their characters hated each other in the movie. I do wonder what the cast thinks about that conversation. If some of them agree with, oh, Sharpay was just misunderstood, or if some people are like, no, she was a mean girl and that was it. I do wonder. And as this conversation continues to grow up, because like I said, this has been happening for years, but now that it seems to have gotten more attention, I wonder if Ashley Tisdale or anybody else from the cast is going to kind of throw in their two cents. I hope they do because I am curious to know. So Netflix is releasing a Britney Spears documentary of their own. Hulu has, or I don't know if they have yet or if they plan on doing it soon, but they're releasing a sequel to the Framing Britney Spears documentary that was like, that blew up earlier this year. And really I think was the reason why Britney is able to kind of free herself from this conservative ship. And while I think that these documentaries, much like documentaries, period, but in regards to the ones that they've been doing about, about Britney Spears, I do think that documentaries help spread awareness on topics that maybe don't always get a lot of attention. I think they're good for that. They're good at teaching you things. As I've become an adult, I enjoy documentaries a whole lot more now. But I do have to wonder if they are in Britney's best interests or if they're just to make money for Hollywood. So obviously they're making money. Obviously that is a, a main reason why they're capitalizing off of this drama and this story because it's gotten everybody's attention. Now the whole free Britney movement has been going on for years. But now people, including myself, are taking it more seriously because I wasn't well informed on things that were going on in this case. I always saw people saying, free Britney, free Britney. Obviously, I knew that, you know, she had gone through a, a mental breakdown and things like that. But also, I was very, very young during these times. So for me, I cared about the music. I cared about the pop culture aspect. I never cared to really look into it further. I was a kid. And it wasn't until I got older that I started seeing it more and more and realizing, oh, this isn't just like, you know, a little tiny thing like this. She's really in trouble like she actually really does need to be freed what they're doing is wrong and so now with the framing Britney Spears documentary blowing up and you know people starting to really look in and go oh this is wrong what they're doing is wrong she someone actually needs to pull this woman out of this conservative ship now obviously all other people in Hollywood are looking at the success of these stories and going oh well we want to tell our own version of events or we want to do our own documentary because people are definitely going to watch and while I think it's a good idea so that people actually know what happened, back to my point of are these in Britney's best interest because she spoke out and had said, you know, I watched framing Britney Spears and I cried. Like this has got to be uncomfortable for her and for the people who actually genuinely love her to have to relive some of the worst moments of her life and feel like people are just capitalizing off of the story for money and not really doing it because they care about her. Because let's face it, she's been struggling for over a decade and it seems like now the world is starting to really care and take it seriously. So I have like a, I guess, mixed 
you know, feelings about all of these documentaries. I still haven't seen Framing Britney Spears. I probably will eventually make my way to it. I'll probably get to the Netflix one first. Mostly, mostly because I want to learn and know what's really going on because I'm, I'm learning more now than I, I did before. But these documentaries are really going to put more things in perspective. But I really do feel like Britney should be making money off of these. They should be going to her legal fees, to her lawyers, to her team that's helping her try to get out of this thing, to charities that she cares about, to her kids, to someone. Britney should be benefiting from this in some kind of way. I think I would feel better if that was the case. But from the moment that framing Britney Spears really caught on, I knew this was her moment. This, I think she has a really great chance at getting out of this thing now because now this has been cracked wide open. They can no longer hide it or or try to frame her as this crazy person. Like she can finally free herself. And I was so happy that I was ended up being right and that it seems like she's on her way to being freed because like I said, the documentaries do provide a lot of information and a lot of insight to what's going on. And once you get the world's attention, it's kind of hard to keep doing those vile things when people are now looking at you and calling you out for it. And now the public heat is too much for you to continue doing what you're doing, which is the only reason she's being freed because now her father looks like a horrible, horrible man. And not only that, just recently I read that her father is now being investigated by the FBI for unlawful recording after it was revealed that he was taping her phone conversations from her bedroom, which is just a gross breach of privacy. Just even if someone actually really needed to be monitored for their mental health, for you to go out of your way to record them when they're in their bedroom is just beyond me. Some of the things that Brittany had said that she wasn't allowed to do have kids, have more kids, get married, just have the freedom to do what she wants to do was just so disgusting. But now you're recording her phone conversations. So now the FBI is investigating him. And I think all of this heat from the public backlash to now this investigation, he now wants to detach himself from this conservatorship and not, not even just hand it off to someone else, but just to end it. Because I think they are going to find things. Because, you know, once the FBI gets involved, it's even more serious. So I do think they're going to find things. I think that Brittany has probably had evidence of all of the abuse she suffered in this conservatorship for years piled up. And now people are really paying attention and now people are listening. But this should have been, she should have been pulled out of this thing years ago. She should have never been placed in it. You know, obviously she had a mental breakdown. She had issues. But you could have put her with the therapist. You could have had her maybe in a mental institution where she could get her mind right. But putting her in this thing and making her choices for her, she's a grown woman, I believe she's in her 40s, just was the wrong thing to do. To make it hard for her to see her kids and spend time with them, she has to do what you say in order to get these things. Manipulating her is just disgusting. So I feel like it's about time that Britney finally gets freed, she gets her justice, she gets to spend time with her kids, she gets to take the much-deserved break that I think she needs and kind of just do what she wants to do after so long. I think that's a great thing. And even though I don't know Brittany personally, I am glad that she's finally gonna get her freedom. She's engaged now, I'm happy for her. And hopefully after she gets freed, they stop making all these documentaries and they kind of just allow her to spend time with her family and just take time to herself and just leave her alone pretty much. You know, I think she's kind of given a lot, maybe too much to the world and I think she deserves her privacy. Moving on from Brittany and on to more much deserved karma, R. Kelly was found guilty on all charges of racketeering and sex trafficking and he faces a hundred years in prison. I say it's about damn time. I think that this should have happened back in 2008 during his first trial, you know, but sometimes karma is a very, it takes long to hit a person. And I, I always tell people that, you know, karma, it might not happen today, may not happen this year, it may happen in 20 years, but karma will always catch up to you in the end. And R. Kelly is a prime example of that. I want to say justice is served, but it took so long for justice to be served. It's kind of like a bittersweet thing because I really feel like... They had so much evidence against him the first time that he should have never gotten off. So justice kind of wasn't served in a way with that. Um, again, and when we're talking about documentaries, really informing people and forcing people to take a look at things that they've been trying to avoid looking at, 
It's another example here with the Surviving R. Kelly documentary, which really put things in perspective and really forced people to pay attention to his survivors and to say, you know what, we cannot support him anymore. We have enough of a case to go against him. Let's get this guy for good. So it's kind of a bittersweet thing where it's like justice was served this time, but it wasn't served back then when it really should have been so that this didn't keep happening. If justice was served when it was supposed to be served originally, then this you know, you wouldn't have all of these survivors, you know. I don't know if they're going to slap him with the full 100 years. I hope they do. But it may be just a life sentence, essentially. Because, I mean, the guy's in his, what, 50s? He's not going to last 100 years. So it's essentially a life sentence either way. And he's also got a um, federal and state case in Illinois. And that's where he got off in the first trial. So I do believe they're going to do, they're going to make sure they have an airtight case against him. And they're, he's probably going to be found guilty in in the Illinois trial as well. So really and truly, he's probably gonna be hit with a couple different life sentences, essentially. He's not going anywhere. He's going to be spending the rest of his life in jail. He can no longer make money off of the music. He's been trying to sell his catalog, I think for several months and nobody is willing to buy it because there's no money in it anymore anyway. And now it's an image thing as well. Who wants to be the person known as, oh, they bought R. Kelly's catalog. Um, so he's, it's really a wrap. I think his assets, his money has been frozen since he stepped foot in jail in 2019 when they arrested him. So it's, it's a wrap for him. He's getting everything. He, they're hitting him where it hurts. He's losing his freedom. He can't make music anymore. He can't make money off of his music anymore. It's really a wrap. And I do continue to pray for the mental health and the safety from his survivors because I know after the documentaries, they were facing death threats and harassment online and same with their families. So I do pray that they stay safe. And even though it took a very, very, very long time that they finally got justice and the man that caused them all this harm can no longer get to them anymore. And I think that's the most important thing. So while music has been pretty slow this week, TV, my TV segment is going to be extremely beefed up because there are a lot of new shows that have premiered. There are a lot of shows that came back that I enjoy and fall is the prime time for television and we are now officially in fall. So I wanted to share more of my thoughts on the TV shows that I have been watching. So I'm going to start off with Our Kind of People, which is a new show that stars Yaya DaCosta, Morris Chestnut, Joe Morton, Debbie Morgan and more and when I first saw the trailer for the show I said you know I always got to support my people the trailer looked interesting enough so I decided to give it a shot so like I mentioned before the show has a strong cast and nine times out of ten that's where your bread and butter is you have a strong cast you're more than likely to have at least a decent tv show I will say that Joe Morton's character on the show reminds me too much of Papa Pope He's just a watered-down version of him, and I think that's why I can't really get into his character so much because I'm like, okay, I've seen you do um, slightly better work on Scandal, and this character just seems to be a version of that character, and I don't know if now he's typecast because of that because his, ro his roles prior to Scandal I don't think were of that nature of this power and money-hungry guy that lives to kind of have control over his family and have that kind of weird power dynamic structure with his daughters because it was like that with Olivia Pope on Scandal and it's like that with his daughter on this show so I think I can't unsee him from Scandal and because the character is kind of like his character on Scandal I'm having a little bit of trouble with that the acting and the performance is still good but I do keep that in the back of my mind the storyline was also kind of predictable I guess several things in the plot before they actually happened I also think that the pacing was rushed they could have waited to reveal who Angela's father was and peeled back the pieces layer by layer to that story until we got to that reveal. I think that would have been more effective so that even though, you know, the audience may have started to kind of put the pieces together, you're not telling them outright that they're correct right away. I think that when they did that, the writers showed their hand too early. But despite all of this, the show does have potential despite the predictability of it all. Episode 1 did its job well enough that I'm interested to see where they take the rest of the season and 
I can only hope that they have more shocking plot lines now that they've revealed so much in only episode one. I have to believe that they have more things in store for the rest of the season that can kind of, you know, keep us or make us willing to sit through the rest of the season. Because if you show your hand too early and you already revealed one of the major plots of the show in the first episode, what is there left to give? So I'm, I'm going to hope that that's the case here that you know because they have so many big plot lines and twists in the show that something like this was small enough that they could give away in the first episode but like I said I'm going to keep watching for the rest of the season and then I will let you guys know my thoughts throughout this podcast while I watch the rest of the show I also wanted to give some of my thoughts on the first episode of season five of 911. Now, I want to give a spoiler alert. If you have not watched 911 yet, the season premiere, I do suggest that you skip over this segment because I am going to be talking about what happens in the first episode, and I would hate to spoil that for you. So, I already know this season is going to be a roller coaster ride, and I can't wait to see how things unfold. And if you can, if I have that feeling, only after watching the first episode, then you know the rest of the season is going to be great. Now, the first episode revisits the serial rapist case. If you don't quite remember, he was breaking into women's homes and raping them. They end up catching him after Athena finds his hideout, but not before he brutally attacks her, which results in her taking time from her job. He's now on trial and decides to represent himself instead of having a lawyer, which means he'd have to question each of the women, including Athena. Due to a cyber attack, though, various technical systems crashed and the rapist escapes. Now, the rest of the season will probably focus on his escape and him stalking and harassing Athena and her family because now he has a personal vendetta against her because she is the reason he ended up being caught. And now the interesting part of all of this is he gets rid of his lawyer so that he can represent himself. Then after he escapes, he breaks into her home. And just as he's about to, I guess, kind of get away with kidnapping her, one of the cops stops him in time, puts the cuffs on him and puts him in the back of the car. You think, hey, it's over. They caught him. You know, Now that he attempted to kill another woman, this definitely makes the case easier in favor of his survivors and Athena. But lo and behold, the lawyer and this guy were in it together because the lawyer ends up sneaking behind the cop and kills him before he can take the guy back to jail. So it's very clear that they're in cahoots with each other, that they're a team. I don't know how that ended up happening. But Athena still thinks, because the cop called her after he had apprehended the guy, saying, hey, we called him, it's over, I'm taking him back to jail. You know, he hangs up the phone before he gets killed. So Athena's still thinking, hey, we caught this guy, he's no longer on the loose, I can relax, I can go back to living my life. But lo and behold, He's on the run again, and he's most likely going to set his sights on Athena and her family and make their life a living hell. And I think that's what's going to make this show so interesting because this is the first time 911 has allowed a plot to continue past the season. So this will be interesting to watch how they go about doing this and what the end result of this is going to be. What I personally think, what my personal theory is, is obviously... They're going to catch the guy. He's eventually going to be put in jail. But I think the trauma of all of this is going to be too much for Athena and she's going to officially retire. And I think this because she took time off after she was attacked and it was hard for her to kind of get back on her feet when she went back into the field. Her and Bobby, her husband, have already kind of had arguments about her retiring and, and he prefers her to retire because he feels like you know, she had been through too much after that attack and he's worried about her mental health. I think eventually she's going to realize that he's right and eventually say, you know what, I've done my time. I've, I've saved all the people that I can save. I had a great career. I can no longer function in this job because even though she finally got back on her feet, you can see that she still suffers PTSD from this attack. And I think this is going to be too much for her. And she's going to take a step back and retire and kind of just find something else to do. I don't think that she would be um, a retired stay-at-home mom because that doesn't seem to be in her nature. But I do think she's going to retire as a police officer. In this episode, you also see Eddie struggle with his PTSD and anxiety and also struggle with this new dynamic he has in his new relationship. It's obvious that he's still not over his ex-wife and... 
the idea of dating someone and becoming so serious with them that she could now potentially be a mother figure to his son is a lot for him to handle. And you kind of see him kind of struggle with this. In this episode, I can already tell he's going to get on my nerves throughout the season because he's definitely like that typical alpha male where when something is wrong, he just can't accept that that's the case. And he, you know, is in this aggressive denial stage where the doctor doesn't know what they're talking about. I don't want anybody close to me telling me um, that this is what's wrong with me or that there's anything wrong with me. I just want to be in denial. I'm strong. This, this is for the weak-minded. I don't go through things like this. So I can already tell he's going to be frustrating me because it's very clear that he is struggling with PTSD. I know eventually he will come to accept it, but right now he's, like I said, he's in that aggressive, you know, denial stage where he's just ignoring the signs that are clearly there and he'll probably keep suffering with this until he accepts it. Also, they touched a little bit on Buck and his new relationship with that reporter chick, which to me seems kind of forced. I don't really hate them as a couple, but I do think they're a waste of a storyline. They're a waste of screen time because the chemistry isn't all there. So I also don't see a relationship working out long-term for them, but we'll see. So far, their relationship kind of bores me. Maddie wasn't in this episode a whole lot. I think maybe she had one or two scenes, and obviously she's still struggling with postpartum. I... I'm sure that they're probably going to dive deeper into her struggles as the season progresses, but her and Chimney weren't in this episode a whole lot. Most of their scenes were with their child. But overall, like I said, I think this season is going to be great. And I think that Ryan Murphy, this is like one of his first shows in a long time that has gotten past that season five hurdle where the show kind of loses its steam like Glee. I think I heard this about American Horror Story. He seems to kind of hit season five and lose a lot of his edge and steam for the show. But 911 from that first episode, I already know that they're going to be an exception to that. And it's not just Ryan Murphy either. It's a lot of long running shows. They get past, they get to a certain point and the show just starts to drag and it's just not as interesting anymore. And but 911 has not lost its steam since it's premiered. So I can't wait to see how the rest of the season plays out. So moving on from some of my TV show reviews, I wanted to get into my predictions for the Grammy 2022 nominations. Now the official nominations aren't announced until sometime in November, I think I read. So before that occurs, I wanted to get into some of the artists and songs that I think will be nominated for the Grammys. Obviously I didn't go through all of the categories. I just went through the ones that I particularly care about. And usually there are about seven to eight nominations per each category. Some of my predictions don't have seven or eight. It's just an idea of who I think may be in these categories. So I'm going to start off with record or song of the year. Technically, I believe I can't remember which one's which, but one of them focuses more on the actual artist and the performance of the song and the other one focuses on the you know technical aspects of the song the production the engineering the writers things like that so I just decided to lump them together because I nine times out of ten um the record of the year and song of the year usually has the same nominees so for record or song of the year I have kiss me more by Doja Cat and SZA one of the best collaborations of the year one of the better pop songs of the year as well it was a big record and I think that this has a chance at being nominated. I think Montero by Lil Nas X, Call Me By Your Name, or Industry Baby has a chance as well. Lil Nas X is definitely going to end up nominated in a lot of these categories, but definitely for Song of the Year. I also think Leave the Door Open by Silk Sonic is a no-brainer. That was one of the biggest songs of the year. If they don't walk away with at least three Grammys for that record, I'm going to be shocked. But then again, this is the same institution that screwed over the weekend for After Hours, so anything is possible. Peaches by Justin Bieber, I think, has a chance. Up by Cardi B has a chance. Dot Shit by Megan Thee Stallion, that's one of those things where it's like, I could see it happening, but you know, may maybe, maybe not, but I threw her in there because she was a big winner for um, the Grammys this year, so they may throw her a nomination for that song. I also think Driver's License by Olivia Rodrigo has a strong chance because that was, you couldn't go anywhere without hearing that song, without seeing people talk about it on social media, without seeing it attached to a TikTok. 
So I wouldn't be surprised if she ends up taking the song of the year for that alone. And the last song I think that has a possibility for a nomination is What's Next by Drake. I don't think that there are a whole lot of songs on Certified Lover Boy that really are strong enough to snag a nomination for a Grammy. Now this is Drake, so I'm pretty sure they're going to select him either way. But I do think What's Next hit-wise was strong enough to maybe snag one. So I put that one on here. Moving on to my predictions for album of the year, Donda by Kanye is on there because let's face it, it was one of the most highly anticipated albums of the year. Kanye made a whole spectacle out of it. It's Kanye West. I definitely think he has a chance at being a nominee for this. I also think Certified Lover Boy for Drake has a strong chance for the same reasons. Sour by Olivia Rodrigo is definitely going to get a nomination and she's most likely going to win because, again, one of the biggest pop albums of the year. I see Happier Than Ever by Billie Eilish on this list as well. Back of My Mind by her is definitely going to get one because the Grammys seem to love her and she's had a really great year. So really a great couple of years. I mean, she, again, like much like Megan Thee Stallion, won a lot of Grammys for this year. So I definitely see them nominating her album, her debut album at that for album of the year. Call Me If You Get Lost by Tyler, the Creator is a strong contender. Justice by Justin Bieber as well. And The Offseason by J. Cole. I know he's not a big, big Grammy winner, but this is one of the most talked about albums in hip hop. I definitely see J. Cole at least being a nominee. As far as the best new artist, Olivia Rodrigo is the only new artist I can think of. I definitely think she'll end up with the Grammy in that category. But, you know, for the best new artist, for a lot of that list, they tend to kind of have a lot of real up-and-coming artists on there. So I'm pretty sure there are several um, new artists that the Grammys can think of to put here. But I will be surprised if Olivia Rodrigo doesn't walk away with this one. For best solo pop song... I have Need to Know by Doja. Now, before I get into the rest, some of these predictions were really hard to come up with. I had to really do my research um, because I feel like when I really did my research and I looked at a lot of the releases of this year, a lot of them were lacking to me, but this is the Grammys. It is a popularity contest. So this actually was a lot harder, I think, for me this year than it was for the 2020 for the Grammys for the 2020 ones because there was a, an abundance of good music that I'm like, okay, this can be a possibility, this can be a possibility. Um, so especially the pop categories were hard. But again, I have Need to Know by Doja, Good For You by Olivia Rodrigo, Shivers by Ed Sheeran, Solar Power by Lord, Hold On by Justin Bieber because again, Justice was kind of a mixed bag. It was mostly pop, but there are different categories that he can pull from from Justice that he can use to nominate. I think out of all of the singles that, that he released, Hold On seems to me to be the most pop song. So I think Hold On um, has a chance. Obviously, Call Me By Your Name has a chance. And out of all of the singles from Billie Eilish, for some reason, I'm going with Lost Cause. I feel like she'll nominate that one for some categories. For the best pop vocal album, I have, and you're going to hear a lot of the same albums, but that's usually the case here. Um, I have Justice. I have Sour, Happier Than Ever. I do have Dancing With The Devil, The Art Of Starting Over by Demi Lovato. I, think, I don't think she's heavily nominated, but she has been nominated in the past, so it's not out of the realm of possibilities. And I do think it was a really solid pop album, so I think she has a chance. I haven't listened to Casey Musgrave's Starcrossed album, but I do know a lot of people love her. Golden Hour, from what I heard from other people, was a great pop album. It did win her a Grammy. I wouldn't be surprised if they nominate her for Starcrossed. It did make the deadline. So I could see that being up there as well. For the best R&B album, I again, back of my mind by her. I definitely think that she'll most likely end up winning the Grammy for that. I have Temporary Highs in the Violet Skies by Snow Allegra. I think she has a strong chance of finally getting Grammy nominated at least. I have Shelly by Shelly, formerly known as Dram on here. Pink Planet by Pink Sweats. You know, he's now gaining more and more you know, attention and popularity. So I think he has a chance, possibly. Hotels by Jasmine Sullivan is on here. I know it's an EP, but I think it's a strong enough body of work that they should consider it in this category. 
For best R&B song, I have Wild Side by Normani. Again, a really, really popular song. You'll hear it all over TikTok. You'll see it on social media. People created challenges to it. I think it's a big enough record that she can put it on here and have a good chance of being nominated. Peaches by Justin Bieber for obvious reasons. I wouldn't be surprised if Have Mercy by Chloe Bailey ends up making the cut. Again, it's a very, very new song. It's slowly building traction by the time the Grammys are actually airing. The song will have been out for a while, so it has a strong chance of, you know, being a nominee. Good Days by SZA, again, one of her highest charting songs that she's ever put out. It was highly anticipated from the moment she played a snippet of it. I definitely think it's a smart idea to put it up for a nomination. Pick Up Your Feelings by Jasmine Sullivan. I see them, you know, nominating Coastin by Victoria Monet, another song that's been slow burning its way up to more and more R&B charts, definitely deserving. A couple of songs from Snow Allegra could make the cut. I wouldn't be surprised if she goes with Lost You, but I do think she should go with Tangerine Dream. I think that's a strong choice. And finally, Leave the Door Open. Leave the Door Open to me is very like inspired by 70s neo-soul Motown music, but it's popular enough that you can get away with putting it in pop categories, but I could, I wouldn't be mad seeing it in a best R&B songs. Um, and I think that out of all of the songs, most likely to win would probably be Silk Sonic. Moving on to rap, for the best rap album categories, I have King's Disease 2 by Nas. Now, obviously, within recent years, the Grammys have started splitting up the rap categories by putting more of a traditional category along with, like, you know, the pop star rap category. Um, but I don't have enough predictions for the traditional one, so I'm just going to put King's Disease 2 on here. I have the off-season Certified Lover Boy, Donda. I wouldn't be surprised if DMX's Exodus album ends up being on there as well. Culture 3 by The Migos, The Voice of the Heroes by Lil Baby and Lil Durk, and Faith by Pop Smoke will definitely pick up a nomination for Best Rap Album. For Best Rap Song, I have Thought Shit, What's Next, Wakisho, Family Ties, which Kendrick's verse alone, I, I definitely see Baby Keem being nominated um, in a couple of the rap categories, but specifically Family Ties. Industry Baby, Seeing Green by Nicki Minaj, Lil Wayne and Drake, to me, one of the more authentic rap songs of the year. I think that it's a, a good idea to nominate that song out of all of the new ones she's released. I think it's got a strong chance of snagging a nomination. Lumberjack by Tyler, the Creator is a good choice. And 95 South by J. Cole definitely should be nominated for Best Rap Song because it is one of the best, if not the best, rap song of the year. For Best Rap Melodic Performance, I have Wakisha, which I feel like is a better fit here than it is for the rap song category, but it is a very popular record, one of the more popular rap songs of the year, so definitely see it being here. Way Too Sexy, Maybe Dumb, but it fits right into the melodic shit, and it was a number one song on Billboard, so I definitely see Drake, you know, tossing that song in there for a nomination. Calling My Phone by Lil TJ, again, another um, popular melodic uh, rap song that people loved, including myself, and I don't really listen to him like that. The Jackie by Baz, I definitely see J. Cole trying to put in some of his artists up for nominations, and he is featured on this record, and it fits this category well. Again, Industry Baby, I think, works for this category, and Avalanche by Migos. Lastly, I wanted to get into the best pop duo, which took me some time to come up with. I don't have a whole lot of songs under this, you know, category, but of course, Kiss Me More, which I think has a high chance of winning. Stay by The Kid Leroy and Justin Bieber. That was number one for weeks. I definitely see them trying to nominate that song. Leave the Door Open by Silk Sonic, which I feel like is probably the strongest song to win in this category. And lastly, Cover Me in Sunshine by Pink which features her daughter, Willow. It's a really pretty song. Her daughter's got a great voice. I think I reviewed the song on this podcast before, and it was popular. I heard it on the radio a lot. You know, I work in a restaurant that plays music. It's one of the songs that plays the most. So I do think that she should um, put that song up for a nomination. So that wraps up my predictions for the Grammy nominees for 2022. Now, some of these predictions were obvious choices, so I'm pretty sure some of my predictions will come true. 
But once the Grammy nominees are announced, I will revisit my predictions and see how many I got right. Moving on from the Grammys, Rihanna teased her non-existent album, I think it was last week, by saying she's having fun experimenting. I think she might as well name her album The Myth because I don't think that album's coming out anytime soon, to be honest. From what she said in that interview, it sounds like she's in a space right now where she's just having fun creating music. She has, it, it doesn't seem to be an actual album right now, just experimenting with different sounds and, and genres and just seeing what works for her. I think she's probably in the very, very early stages of this album. I wouldn't be surprised if she has other versions of this album and scrapped them because she wasn't feeling it or felt like, you know, it worked this year, but if I were to put out some of these songs, you know, next year, it really wouldn't work anymore. So I really don't think that album's coming anytime soon. And she kind of just said that to give her fans something to hold on to or to make them feel like she was actively working on an album. But to me, it seems to be very, very early stages. It may not even be a full album right now. The Weeknd also um, teased his album, The Dawn, which has a stronger chance of actually coming out. And, you know, for months he's been saying the dawn is coming and finally he said the dawn is here um he may be shooting for a november release because he does go on tour in january and it's very hard to put out a new album while you're actively touring it doesn't make sense to do so i think during this pandemic after his tour had been delayed and he was already working on this new body of work he thought it would just be smarter to tour with two albums which i always said i saw a lot of artists doing and so i definitely see him putting out the album in November, maybe December, but November makes more sense. Black Friday, a lot of holiday stuff. You know, it makes sense sales wise and from a business perspective to put out an album in November. And I learned that from my dad because he's the numbers guy. I'm just the creative. So I definitely see him putting something out in November. I think before October ends, he'll probably put out another single with the pre-order for the album. You know, he doesn't really need a whole lot of singles before the dawn I think after hours already created enough hype for him for this album people are really looking to hear how he's going to continue you know with the sound and what an what an album after after hours is going to sound like because after hours is his greatest work so far so I think a lot of people are anticipating to hear what's next and what it's going to sound like so I don't think he needs a whole lot of singles leading up to this album I think After Hours did that for him so Take My Breath is already performing well it's not obviously as big as Blinding Lights because that was a monster single but it is performing well commercially so he doesn't need a whole lot you know leading into this Dawn album it's also being teased by multiple radio stations that Adele is apparently dropping her lead single next week now, there have been a lot of rumors regarding Adele in this upcoming album that for me, unless I hear something, unless she posts it herself, I'm not inclined to believe this, but it looks a little bit more likely considering a lot of radio stations. And they would know considering these labels are handing them the singles, here's what the single's gonna sound like, you know, play it um, after its release. So there's a chance that Adele is around the corner, but like I said, I'm a little bit of a skeptic when it comes to rumors about music and releases. So we'll hear for ourselves if this is actually the case, because I read tons of rumors that Beyonce was gonna release something last Friday, didn't believe them, and I ended up being right, nothing dropped from her. So we'll see if this Adele news ends up being true. I love Adele, so I can't wait for a new album from her. She's definitely a fall, winter type of artist, so it wouldn't make sense for her to drop by November for sure, and um, I, I kind of think that she will. On to the new releases from last week, starting with J. Cole. He released a new freestyle to Drake's song Pipe Down called Heaven's EP. Now, the moment I heard Pipe Down, I fell in love with it but I wish that Drake spit some bars on it. So when the beat first started for Heaven's EP and I knew he was using Pipe Down, I was super excited because obviously J. Cole's a spitter. It already had blueprint vibes to me, but hearing J. Cole spit over this beat drove that home. Like I could really hear Jay-Z on this song as well. Now it's not J. Cole's best freestyle, but he gets the job done. What stuck out the most to me and to a lot of people is that in the song, J. Cole talks about being third to Drake and Kendrick and how the world sees him that way. Recently, he brought Drake out for his first 
uh, stop on the offseason. And, you know, Drake kind of gave him his flowers saying that, you know, J. Cole is one of the best to touch a mic. And I do think it's interesting that someone like J. Cole, who's not really on social media like that and doesn't seemingly pay attention to, I guess, what other people have to say, it shows that he does pay attention because a lot of conversations happen on Twitter where they rank, you know, the top three in the game, Kendrick, Drake, and Cole, and a lot of people do rank Cole as third. So it's interesting and kind of makes him seem really humble that, you know, I I hear the chatter, I agree with you, and I'm cool with taking the bronze, I'm cool with being third. But I also think that it's really subjective. There are people who have Drake as third, there are people who have Kendrick as third, there are people who have Cole um, at number one. My list without bias is Kendrick Cole Drake. With bias, it's Cole Drake Kendrick. You know, it, it varies and a lot of people's lists vary as well. But it was interesting to kind of hear him comment on things I didn't think he really paid attention to, but it shows that every artist does. Every artist cares a little bit about what people think about them, no matter what kind of front they try to put on, they do deep down. Based off of the title, we're either getting an actual EP or he's prepping It's a Boy for next year, which is a mixtape that he's already announced. And he usually preps his next era with a freestyle, so Heaven's EP makes a lot of sense. He is on tour right now, so I think that likely we'll, we'll probably get It's a Boy next year. I thought he would take a little bit more time in between his, his albums and projects, but um, It's a Boy has probably already been completed for months now, so it's there's a strong chance that we'll get that next year. Moving on from J. Cole, Lucky Day released a new song called Over, which samples the music Soul Child. Demile and Lucky are a great match, and he produced this record, and Over is just another great song in their um, catalog of music together. I think together they make authentic neo-soul that sounds fresh and modern, and I think that's a lot of what Lucky Day's appeal is. Over gives you hints of nostalgia due to the sample, but Lucky makes it his own. He's a great writer and very in tune with his emotions, which is what makes you feel the song even more. The guitar in the production sounds so tender it's to die for. I wasn't overly impressed with his last EP, but this track is on par with how I expect music from him to sound like. My favorite lines from Over are quote, know you a 10, but that attitude ain't fine. And I really like this line, it really stuck out to me because it was like a clever way of saying, hey, your looks are great, but your, your personality isn't, and that takes away from your look. So yeah, you may have the prettiest face in the world, but your attitude is trash, your personality is trash, and that's a turnoff altogether. And it may sound cliche, but at least for me, that matters. Your personality and face has to match. Now, obviously, physical attraction is a big part of why a relationship works, because you have to be physically attracted to the person to be in a relationship. I believe that and people can say it's shallow, but it's true. However, looks do fade. And after a while, I will get over the attractiveness of your face. And if your personality is horrible, then a relationship between us just can't work. And I feel like the line in this song was like a clever or witty way of saying what a lot of us think. Moving on from Lucky Day, Giveon released his new single as well last week called For Tonight. Though the message in this song is typical from his usual themes and and topics that he sings about, the song is still really good. I don't think it'll ever get old from him. The beat is a tiny bit more lively than his usual, which gives me hope that he won't give us an album filled with ballads, because that does get old after a while. His vocals sound great, and the lyrics are well written too. Giveon always glides over the piano, and this is no different on For Tonight. Logic also released a new single. Technically, it's a remix, because it's the remix to Perfect from his... No Pressure album, which to me, I feel like he already released a project after No Pressure, so it didn't really make sense for him to release this remix now. There is a bit of a story as to why this remix took so long, because it was supposed to come out after No Pressure came out, and the drama surrounding this has to do with Def Jam allegedly not paying Lil Wayne for his verse. And so Logic refused to put it out if Lil Wayne wasn't getting paid. I guess eventually Def Jam and Lil Wayne worked it out and the song came out. Perfect was really good, but I always wished it was longer. So the remix is good for this because it extends the song. I think the original is only like a minute long and the remix I think is over two minutes. 
This beat is nuts, which is part of the reason I loved it so much. ASAP Ferg has the standout verse on this track. He went nuts and barred up. And I hardly say this about ASAP Ferg because he's kind of like, he's an acquired taste. But on this song, he was a perfect fit because this beat is made for an animated rapper. And that's what Ferg is essentially. Kendrick would have bodied this too, I think. I don't think Lil Wayne's verse was needed. It wasn't a super long verse. I feel like there was all that drama surrounding this verse that I that I was assuming it was going to be something excellent, but it wasn't. I think Wayne has been on a good streak for features between Perfect and his verse on the Waukesha remix. I think that streak has officially been ended because both of those verses on those songs were not the greatest. My favorite lines from Perfect Remix is, quote, when I get geeked, I go black on the beat and I'm peeling them off my cleats. Now, before we get to the end of the episode, I did want to get into the song of the week. And the song of the week is Tragic by Jasmine Sullivan. I have had this song on repeat since it came out. I reviewed it when it came out on my podcast a few months ago. I think it's supposed to be off of the Hotels Part 2 EP. And it's really just a really really good R&B record. You can hear hints of Neo Soul. The production is to die for. It's so, so good. And one of the best R&B songs released this year, other than Pressure by Ari Lennox and some of the songs off of Snow Allegra's recent album, I think Jasmine Sullivan has a really good handle of, okay, I came from traditional R&B and I'm still giving you traditional R&B, but I'm also giving you it in a way that sounds new and it sounds fresh and it fits in with the music today and Jasmine Sullivan took a long break from music before coming out but you can tell she really took her time crafting this music so that it sounds the way it does and you could not tell that she took that long of a break off of music because with Hotels and Tragic it sounds like she just never left. So it's the song of the week. Check it out if you haven't heard it. You won't be disappointed. We have come towards the end of the episode, and I want to thank you so much for listening to me rant and ramble for over an hour. If you enjoyed this episode, then please give my podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you rate podcasts. And if you want to support me further, then please donate to my listeners' donation, which can be found on my website, www.listentomespeak.com, or on my Anchor page. And if you want to keep up with this podcast further, you want to know when new episodes are posted, any delays, any news regarding the podcast, then again, you can head to my website, www.listentomespeak.com, and there are links to my social medias. I am on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, even YouTube. So go ahead to my website and check that out. And like I say every week, be kind to yourselves, and thank you for listening to me speak.